0: Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of the Highlander Podcast... We continue our History of Gear series talking about the founding and legacy of Holubar. We talk about the founders Roy and Alice and their lasting impact on the industry. This is Chase Anderson today, uh, joining me again, Bruce Johnson of the History of Gear Project as a part of our History of Gear series that we've been putting together. Um, You know, for those who don't know, we've been going week by week and diving into the the research and history that uh, Bruce has compiled on his History of Gear project website, which we'll link to, um, and talking you know, brand by brand um, about some of the pioneering individuals and pioneer companies um, that really influenced the industry that we know today. Uh, thanks for joining again, Bruce.
1: Glad to be here.
0: Yeah, t- today we're talking about Holubar, um a company that Roy and Alice Holybar started in Boulder, Colorado. Um and the influence of that company and and we'll dive into the history and how that um you know it's kind of around that same time as as Jerry, which we talked about last time. Um but uh I, I guess to start, you you started off the Jerry conversation mentioning that Jerry Cunningham and Ann um were recognized by Outdoor Industry Association as some of the outdoor industry's gear pioneers right um yes, and greatest pioneers um, and Roy and Alice were also recognized at that same event nineteen ninety two recognized yeah,
1: the by select little group mm-hmm. yeah
0: um so I thought it was important to make sure to make that clear at, at the start as well that they were part of that elite company of gear founders, and we'll link to the the complete list as well but um maybe to start um you know, what, what is your interest in bar? I know you just love gear and the history of gear in general, but what does Bar mean to you? I know you have a, a soft spot um, for this company in particular, and um, you know, maybe tell us about your relationship to the company.
1: It goes back to my first piece of actual quality gear, and that was a Bar tent that I bought in probably about 1967, or something, on that order. It was a beautiful thing called a royal light tent. Uh, It took me through lots of high places and blizzards and other travails. Um, And that led me into knowledge of the company and their catalogs I would devour. Uh, After another couple of years, I was wealthy enough to buy a Hollybar Royalite sleeping bag and was totally impressed by that. And so it began pretty early where I knew that it was a very, very high quality company with values that I really appreciated.
0: I, I kind of failed to do this the last time we talked, but I, I think it's nice to hear, you know, your first interactions with these products we didn't do that with jerry necessarily but i think it's nice to know you know what's the personal connection that you had with with each of these products and i think it gives the history even more meaning right knowing that you know you have an attachment to it um but going back to the beginning um you know we're we're gonna kind of tread some of the same territory that we did in the jerry conversation because these companies kind of got going around the same era um but do you mind sharing a little bit about just kind of the state of the industry the state of just that era that that Roy and Alice were growing up in and maybe how that influenced the company moving forward
1: the story of Hollybar has some differences and some big similarities to, to the story of Hollybar the hollybars lived and worked and grew up and went to high school all in boulder colorado where the business uh, was also eventually so before world war ii they were active in the colorado mountain clubs they were active hikers and uh did some mountain rescue type stuff as well but they were they were just well-integrated members of the community had been for years and years, but they weren't a business until after the war. So Roy really was the one who started the business and that was right after World War II. And he was mainly importing gear from Europe. In those early days, and he was helped greatly uh, by his wife Alice, who was a German immigrant, was uh, you know uh, fluent in German, and could contact people all over Europe, and she had uh, relatives and other contacts still on the continent, so she could do things that other people uh, in the United States really uh, couldn't do very well. So they they were an import business and they weren't selling tents and sleeping bags and so forth eventually two big things happened roy became aware of a new type of sole for boots sole s o l e and uh it was called Bramani. it was it uh, from Italy at the time if you were a climber you used these boots with these triconi nails in them which uh, were kind of like a mini crampon almost and they were not very good on rocky surfaces only on treacherous surfaces that might have ice so he brought these things in and um, began to offer a resole business, send your boots in and we'll put this new type of soul on them. $5. Those souls eventually became what we now call Vibram souls.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: And his efforts, uh, led to, uh, Goodyear rubber beginning to make those souls here. Right. So that was a big thing he did. And, uh, He also then, in that same time period, late 40s, um, had a local blacksmith friend of theirs, Bob Bruning, uh, who he commissioned to start cranking out things like pitons. And what some might say was the first widely available rock hammer, long before Chenard brought out his. So that's kind of how the whole thing got started there.
0: Right, this I Boulder was just kind of the uh, so many ideas were incubated at this time, and there's so many common threads that we'll get into, but it's interesting. you mentioned Bob Bruni in, in the last conversation. Jerry helped helped them make a lot of their hardware. Um, so so many common threads and, and and recurring names that we'll get into um, throughout throughout these conversations. right?
1: Yes. um. I made the implicit distinction, really, that the Hollybars were natives to Boulder and had mm-hmm. these many, many contacts and this standing in the community. Um Jerry Cunningham and his wife, Anne, were outsiders, right. They were complete outsiders. They moved in to the mountains high up above Boulder, bought some land, and had this great dream that they were going to start a outdoor gear business that could sustain them and their family. What a crazy idea Well, the Hollybars caught wind of these two people because uh, Jerry had written them, "Hey, I want to start a year company. I 'm coming on out." <clears throat> so <clears throat> at that point, actually Hollybar hadn't gotten a business license yet either. And so they went up to this mountain place called Ward. The Hollybars did, and helped Jerry and his wife build their first house workshop uh, as winter approached. And this was how things were back then. It was really kind of a welcoming and collaborative thing. And I I wanted to characterize the, the Hallyabars as those kind of people. And I also wanted to read out of my book, a short little piece about their whole philosophy of what they were and what they were about, if I could do that? Of course. Okay. It just sets the stage so well about who they were, you know? Absolutely. And you've, got, you've got a picture of them too, so we'll put that up there. And I need to take my glasses off here to read up close. Only the best equipment is good enough. Our greatest motivating force continues to be our desire to earn the confidence that our customers place in us. In offering equipment, we make sure that the article will work right and that the quality is beyond question. While the price is as low as possible, we urge you to compare, to compare discriminatingly. We want high regard, yes, friendship. Of course, everyone who purchases from us. It is our aim to give a little more than what is expected. We care very much how you feel about us. In fact, our aim will always be to win and to hold your confidence, to add to the pleasure of your every outing with equipment and service that is dedicated to the success of your ventures." Really a personalized (coughs) statement and it wasn't just words as I learned in my research and talking to ex-customers and people who work for Hollybar, bar, they meant every word of that and right. they carried through with every word of that. Um, if any customer had questions or problems of any kind, they were just totally right there for them on a really personalized basis.
0: Right. I imagine that that focus on quality, probably came from the fact that in those early days they were making everything. Alice was behind a sewing machine making the products herself, right? And so you're really staking your reputation on your own craftsmanship, your own handiwork, and then you put your name on something, right? The company holds your name. You want you don't want to tarnish your own name, right? So it seemed like maybe that was part of what, you know, really you know, they've really focused on on that quality piece.
1: Well, she was, um, this is a stereotype, of course, but she was very much a perfectionistic uh, person uh, who came from Germany and had very high uh, standards uh, for everything.
0: Where did they develop this love? We're going to go back a little bit. Where did they develop this love for the outdoors? You said they were very active in the climbing community. In Boulder, Uh, they were very active. Uh, Where did that come from? Who who taught them these activities? Did they, you know, did their families teach them that? Is you know, with Alice, I know she had relatives that were climbing the Alps, right? And that's that's where their connections came from. uh, When they started importing gear, where did this love of of the outdoors and an awareness of these activities come from?
1: Well, with Alice. um... She grew up on a, it was several hundred acre ranch up in the foothills near Boulder. So she grew up in a real outdoorsy setting like that. And Boulder at the time was of course very small too for Roy even though he was growing up in downtown uh, Boulder. Um, he didn't have parents who were people who were big, climbers or anything like that i mean this was uh for him this was uh, a long time back before climbing was really a big deal around boulder but he was certainly an outdoors person and he loved fishing he loved getting up in the mountains i have pictures of him carrying these horrible kidney buster packs that look as big as he is uh up into the, the rockies to go fishing so that's kind of his background
0: yeah, I was going to say, it was you know, for him was was Lloyd Nelson uh, an influence on him? Did did they have interactions, or he was using one of those packs, kind of a lo- uh, you know some of those those packs, Trapper
1: Nelson time. type pack? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've never seen him in one that was actually a Trapper Nelson. Okay, but it could have been.
0: Right. What What's the one that you you shared with me? A picture of you know this him carrying this large pack.
1: Um, Oh, that could have been one of those Duluth packs. Um, Yeah, there were various kinds of um, kidney buster, I call them, packs that uh, had been used before World War II. And then in World War II, of course, there were some packs that came out of there that were just the same kind of thing, Uh, kidney busters, uh, cotton duck, and so forth.
0: It seems like they were, I mean, they were some of those founding... um, members of, I mean, there, I imagine there was a climbing community, but they really helped solidify it. Um, you know, from the reading that I've done being a part of, you know, it sounded like he started teaching people how to climb, um, after they got married, um, you know, the group that they eventually, you know, helped create, became the Rocky mountain rescue. It just seems like they were a part of that founding group where maybe there wasn't a lot of climbing and infrastructure around that time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh Um, I suppose many people don't think about, well, when did uh, Mountain Rescue get started as an organization? Well, basically, um, it was probably in Colorado around the Boulder area, the Rocky Mountain Rescue Group, uh, in the um, again in the late 40s.
0: And uh, can you attribute some of that again to maybe this lack of knowledge around how to do these activities to or an increase in the amount of people who knew how to do these activities to people coming back from, from the war and, and, and given that training, like the 10th mountain division, um, you know, veterans coming back and having learned how to be mountaineers and how to ski and how to climb coming back with that knowledge and increase in, in people in that region, being able to participate.
1: I would have to say definitely. So yeah, you know, that camp hail thing and the 10th mountain people, uh not, not only coming back to Colorado where maybe they, they had grown up, but outsiders from other parts of the U.S. flocking there too because they'd heard about it.
0: Right. When the, so kind of going back to, to their personal history, uh, Roy and Alice got married in 1937. They went to CU together. Um, he, he eventually went back there to, to teach math, it looks like. He was teaching he at the university
1: being a math teacher right. yeah, at, at Colorado university there.
0: So was, was the company, would you say the company was kind of an accident or was that the plan? Did they want to start a company?
1: Oh no, they, they took out a business license in 1947 right. and uh, that was their, their idea. Although as I indicated, it was primarily Roy's idea at first. It wasn't until the early fifties that, uh, Alice really kind of got turned on and turned into this incredible designer of equipment, especially things like sleeping bags and down garments.
0: Right. So, and around, course, so, sewing, 19, sewing. yeah. So, 1947, they start importing through her relationships and, and where all the good gear was, right? Um, in Europe, um, much longer history of gear over in Europe than here. Um, but it's interesting timing, 1938, you've got Lloyd and Mary Anderson in Seattle, um, doing kind of the same thing, right? Starting REI by importing ice axes. And, uh, 10 years later, Bar starts doing that, that same thing. So it's interesting. Each region, you kind of have people who are getting this idea of, oh, we don't have good stuff here, but Europe's got it. So how do we bring some of that over here? And we all know people who want to buy it. So maybe we can bring it over and sell it to our friends
1: yes and you also have the influence of world war ii materials in particular things like nylon parachute cloth and other such things the uh, crappy down sleeping bags that they used in the war Um, holly bar was also initially selling a bunch of that kind of stuff that they would get through their connections with jerry cunningham who was a veteran Mm. Ray wasn't a veteran, so he couldn't truck on down to Denver and and get a bunch of war surplus stuff. Right, well, so that's kind of how that worked.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting that that early days it was importing and selling products. Um, you know, sending out postcards and cat, You know, they didn't have catalogs yet, but sending out postcards, advertising products. What were some of those first products that they were advertising? They were importing.
1: Well, just what you'd think, uh, it, uh, climbing oriented objects and, and, yeah. uh, uh, by about 1950, they had tuned themselves into a, a down park, a really serious, uh, heavy down park up by Lionel Terre, the French climber. And they were importing that before they started making their own. Um, <clears throat> As you'll see in the picture of uh, Allison Roy Hollybar, he's wearing a Tyrolean hat. So <laughs> their catalogs uh, where I was selling various versions of Tyrolean hats and all the little pins that go into a Tyrolean hat. Um, they were selling Lederhosen and uh, just a bunch of stuff that was <laughs> early, early and very, uh, derived from the, the uh, climbing community of uh, Switzerland, uh, Austria, Germany.
0: Right. So what, what was their first product that they created and sold?
1: Well, they had some early stuff that they made that never got in any catalogs. Okay. Uh, the earliest versions of, of their, their tents weren't in catalogs and just went out to a few climbing friends I happened to know about them.
0: When would that have been?
1: That, that was right around early, early fifties.
0: Okay. So they started kind of their first catalog 1950. Is that when the logo first came about?
1: Uh, that I can't remember what they used for a logo on that catalog. I can look it up easily enough, but, um, there's a story on that first catalog. Um, they actually didn't publish it for about two years it didn't come out till 1950 because alice said to her husband look if we put out our catalog now we're gonna we're gonna destroy the business of jerry cunningham and his wife and their kids up in the mountains there so let's hold off a little bit and they mm-hmm. did so that's kind of the story of that the the uh, first uh catalog uh, actually was just a black and white, almost like, I don't know if it started off as a photo, but it looks more like a drawing, and it has a Tyrolean traverse to a feature of, up above Boulder in the flat iron called the Maiden, that uh, uh, Roy climbed or was dragged up at one point. Uh, their logo was pretty developed uh, by the mid fifties when they started putting out actual gear of their own
0: right did and did it go through some different iterations over time?
1: Yeah, all of them did, yeah, one of their early ones uh really looked a lot like jerry's it had a it had a mountain peak and a climber superimposed against that that peak, pretty much like Jerry's. <laughs>
0: yeah it's interesting the similarities in just like the region, the products the just their stories are like you said so similar but also different in a lot of ways um, so the kind of informally they were selling tents uh, I guess what was their their first product that they really launched with in their in their own catalogs that they put their name on
1: well, they came out almost simultaneously really with uh sleeping bags of Alice's design and the first mountain parka shell garment mountain parka.
0: What, what were people using before, before the mountain parka?
1: People were using, you've seen pictures, maybe of polar explorers and, you know, these things made out of ventile cotton, Mm. like a pullover anorak and things, things like that. Yeah, um there really wasn't um much what we would call good gear in those right. very early days.
0: Where where do you feel like she got the inspiration to make better products like this? And we'll get to this a little in a little bit as well, but you know a lot of their products were like performance level, right? I mean some of these things went out on expeditions and um where did she gain this knowledge of performance?
1: Uh, Alice Hollybar was a lot like Jerry Cunningham. She was just an extremely creative person and inventor. Uh, she analyzed the needs. She tore apart products, old stuff, and, and thought of using new materials and experimented with things like parachute cloth, uh, for baffles inside of sleeping bags. Uh, she almost invented really baffles, uh, the concept of baffling and then perfected uh baffling that was just <laughs> out of this world um i could get into technical details a lot of those kind of things are in my book um but let me point this camera a little bit this way for a minute i have behind me on that chair that's a uh, 1964 olubar royalite expedition bag that i have and 55 years old it's got nine inches aloft still it's totally good to 2030 below zero if you wanted to take it there it's wonderful and soft and comfy doesn't have any cold spots Uh, the quality that uh, she built into things um, the baffles don't rip out because they aren't just surged or even hot cut. They're, they're actually rolled <laughs> seams and parachute cloth, not just mosquito netting. Anyway, I could get technical, but I really probably shouldn't. For this. No, that's,
0: that's great. Where, where was a lot of that being made? She, she handmade a lot of things, but at some point, did they start to set up manufacturing nearby?
1: That really did not happen until uh, she um, passed away early because of a breast cancer situation. And um, before she went, uh, she and her husband decided to sell the company. And they looked around and they found this enterprising young graduate, uh, a business school graduate uh, uh, from uh, Denver named Jim Cack and uh sold it to him
0: oh wow so and
1: that well, worked out really really well
0: okay so really up until then she was sewing everything
1: no no okay. she had a she had a couple uh, um call them seamstresses if you will i suppose uh one of them was a designer in her own right janet folden um so she had some some other people sewing but not many and it was still basically a business in the basement uh scenario.
0: Right. So the and a lot of this again was run out of their home in Boulder. Um Yeah. And again, so many innovative things coming out of out of that place, but maybe we can before we get into, you know, when the business sold and what happened after that, um maybe we should go through some of the firsts. And you touched on one, um, kind of at the top of the, the podcast of, um, at the top of the conversation about Vibram or Brahmani. Um, and, and really, do, do you want to touch on that again briefly? I think that'd be helpful just to share what, what, what was that first?
1: Well, Mountaineers, uh, in the old days, um, this came out of Europe uh, were boots that had these weird cleats made out of metal on the bottom of them. You'd never want to walk them across your laminate flooring. And that was kind of their compromise in Europe for how to be safe, safe footing in, in, in the mountains where you might run into mixed snow and ice on any given climb so that's what americans were using in those very early days too and so roy's big thing was he discovered in that italy had started to make out of some rubber compound these these soles that weren't metal that didn't have nails in them and uh were an an option and they were being used over there so he He imported a few and decided that they were saleable, and then he developed a whole little business of uh, people could either buy the soles and take them to their own shoe person, or they could send their whole boot into him, and he had a local uh, boot maker guy who would uh, resole the customer's boot, and they'd send it back.
0: And that's the company that would become Vibram or Vibram.
1: Roy began to have some profile in, in America about these soles. Uh, he had contact with Goodyear rubber company who started to produce something like what we would now call a Vibram sole. Um, now, I don't know. I never traced down the, the history of the company called Vibram. But uh, anyway...
0: Oh, was- so he was buying from Brahmani, the the man Brahmani. Okay, which yeah. Brahmani ended up starting. You know, the company w- became Vibram.
1: It could be. Yeah, I, th- that I'm not. I yeah. never have investigated that.
0: Yeah, yeah. That that was. Uh, yeah, the Brahm in in Vibram or Vibram is is for Brahmani. Super. Yeah.
1: Super. Well, thank you.
0: Of course. Um, I only know that really because they they came to campus and and shared that history with us. So did
1: they? Uh, yeah, yeah, wonderful.
0: Um, I'll have to dig into that myself a little bit more. So really, uh, bringing some of that rubber over to the U.S., kind of introducing resoling, just a a new type of climbing shoe and, and a new type of rubber for the market. Um, another first, the mountain parka we mentioned. Um, you know, another first that just the sleeping bag design anything in particular that was that was really unique beyond the quality like itself or was construction different what was it about um alice's sleeping bag designs that were truly unique
1: well when you look at a a sleeping bag uh, in total there's a, a lot of different design features in a quality bag that one doesn't really appreciate unless you really start kind of tearing into it Uh, and each of those had to be you might say uh, discovered thought through perfected over a period of of years and Alice was just constantly doing that uh, like a choice of shell material for the bag a choice of interior uh, material it's not just about durability or it's not just about uh, downproofness it's not just it it might be uh, how it feels against the skin um, so the shells on their bags and the interior materials went through various uh, modifications. This bag behind me here uh, is covered with uh, one of the first things that they really perfected French nylon, which yeah, it came from france it's a very very tight weave uh, taffeta. That feels incredibly soft and wonderful up against the skin, but it's downproof. It's very, very soft, easily, easily stuffed into a stuff bag and so forth. Uh, later on, uh, you got other nylons uh, that were ripstop type nylons, like what we might see now, and so they would experiment with different weights. Uh, Those, uh, typically they settled in the later years on 1.5 ounce. Uh, Although their ultimate bag, what they call the ultimate uh, bag, they used a 0.75 ounce ripstop for that. Right. Which I've never seen anybody else even attempt. But this bag had 166 individually sewn down compartments in it. And it was good to like 40 below zero. You couldn't even use it unless you were like in <laughs> the Himalayas.
0: Well, speaking of that, um, they ended up making product for some pre- pretty extreme environments and, and some um, pretty impressive expeditions. Do you mind sharing a little bit about what those were and, and where some of this product ended up and who they ended it's, up working yeah,
1: with? It, it's kind of interesting because, as I've mentioned, they... They and Jerry, Jerry Mountain Sports, Hollybar, uh, Mountaineering LTD is what they call themselves. Um, after a while there in the 50s, there was a division of labor, you might say. Hollybar became known among the serious expeditions as, wow, the best, best down gear. And the best sleeping bags but jerry captured the tent market for the serious people and yeah jerry had down sleeping bags and a great big uh, down expedition parker they called the andean um but really there began to be this nice division there um and climbers were constantly coming into boulder uh to source their materials, to try on stuff. They'd go up to Jerry's, try on stuff, talk to Jerry. They'd go down to the basement of Roy and Alice's house and try on stuff and decide what they wanted. Yeah, That's how it was. It was very convivial and uh, close-knit kind of thing.
0: Right. So so what what expeditions did they participate in? There, There was an Antarctica expedition, is that right?
1: Um, yeah, Jerry also, um, Hollybar um, Holubar and Jerry both had a lot of gear on the famous, uh, first Americans on Mount Everest expedition. Right. Um, yeah, I actually have a picture of, uh, a jerry tent set up uh, in a Tibetan f- field with the mountains off in the distance and um, Buddhist temple in the foreground. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the actual expeditions, um, I have a few of those listed in my book. I can't remember what they are off the top of my head.
0: Yeah, I read, I read the one um... – Uh, I listed on your website, there was an Antarctic expedition and and they needed 150 sleeping bags. Um, They needed tents, they needed crampons, ropes, and it was all in a matter of weeks. They needed a lot of this stuff is from what I read. Um, I can't imagine Alice, maybe she had stuff on hand already, but man, to be able to crank out that many bags in a short amount of time. She um, had
1: at least two other sewers who were just superb. Um, so that's how they got those out uh you know i would uh, be remiss not to mention 1959 moscow uh, um, there was a big deal that uh happened in 1959 when uh, there was some kind of Trade deal going on between the uh, Russia at the time and the U.S., uh, and they wanted an exhibition in Moscow of the best American products in a number of categories. bar was selected, mm. and so <clears throat> there was a big event, and a bunch of their their main gear, like the sleeping bags, uh, went on over to Moscow, and and the Boulder newspaper was uh, uh, documenting that. I have a few pictures uh, from that time. Uh, but, it, it, again, it was a piece of big exposure uh, that Holy Bar got that helped to really make it, its name become bigger and bigger.
0: Right. I was going to say, throughout this time, um, and up until, you know, 1968, when when they decided to sell the company or around that time, what was their response to the company? <clears throat> um, you know, how aware was the the public, or at least the outdoor industry, how aware were they in... Uh-huh you know, in, in the Holy Bars and what they were doing.
1: I have a uh, a humorous uh, quote in, in the book from Abercrombie Abercombie and Fitch, uh, dating from, I'd have to look in the book, but uh, let's just say it was around 1958 or something, and and it's one of these real tongue-in-cheek, left-handed almost compliments saying, well, we've noticed that you finally, uh, you've got some uh, pretty good gear now. <clears throat> so they were, they were getting noticed by some of the, the big names at the time, by that time.
0: Mm, that's interesting. But um,
1: for a long time, it was just really a, a sort of a hardcore cadre of, of climbers and all their friends and buddies right. were getting the word out.
0: Right. Not, not mass appeal yet. Um, Correct. And then that kind of leads to really. So Alice um, getting diagnosed with breast cancer, passing away in 1968. Um, during that, prior to her passing, they, it sounds like Roy and Alice were having conversations about selling um, and then sold to this individ, individual. Uh, who's that again?
1: Jim Cack.
0: Jim Cack. Um, it what what happened in that time you said it was a good time for the business um that and that it was that a acquisition
1: for the business because this uh, this fellow and I you know I've met him um he was not only a great businessman but he was a great leader for the for the the company so He had such employee loyalty, you would not believe what I've heard again and again and again from ex-employees who still love the company like crazy. And um, I got invited to a Hollybar reunion in 2008, where people came from all over the US and met with one another and relived old times. Um, So he really took the company mainstream. Right. And Polybar began to have a huge reputation in the U.S. during the uh, 70s.
0: Right. I was going to say 1979, they opened a lot of retail stores. We even had one in Salt Lake.
1: That's um, right. You had one in Salt Lake City.
0: Yeah, there's, there were stores. It looks like Minnesota, Utah, Arizona, California. Um, from what I read, there were nine stores um, about there. Um, so really what helped propel the product mainstream? You know, they started opening these retail shops, but was it just the right time, right place? Um, and and what, what did they do in particular to help grow the business? Uh,
1: I have to say that at, at that time when Jim Pack took over, there was already the beginning of a tidal wave of interest in backpacking and hiking. There was Earth Day, 1970, mm-hmm. Sierra Designs and North Face, Mountain Safety Research, they'd all really got going. Other companies were getting into the, the mix right at that time too. Snow Lion and the Berkeley uh, Zone and uh, Wilderness Experience. I mean, there, were a, a, there was just a tidal wave of interest going on. And so when Jim Tack took over, he got to build on that uh, with the huge reputation of, of the Hollybar brand for quality and just uh, being the best of the best. So he did not disappoint. He maintained the Hollybar quality standards. He did a really great job with that and was a good leader of, of uh, the company as well as just having such good business sense.
0: Right. And then eventually the, the comp he sells the company, it looks like, or it gets Yeah, loaded. there was
1: there was this um he wasn't a climber. He he wasn't a backpacker. Uh he he liked to fish. Uh he enjoyed Colorado. Um but he wasn't in it for the long term. And after the company got highly successful, um he sold it to Johnson wax Mm -hmm. and that wasn't just a willy nilly thing. And it definitely wasn't Johnson wax swooping in like some corporate raider and taking them over. Um, they, their, their employees, Jim Kack and the employees, uh, went to Wisconsin where Johnson wax was headquartered and, and, uh, got to know the people and decided this was a really good fit that Johnson Wax would do a really good job taking over. It didn't work out that way, but uh, that's how that happened.
0: When when did that happen? When that were they happened
1: around seventy six?
0: Okay, um, and, and and there then... was a bit
1: of a gradual transition. I mean, it didn't happen instantly. Right.
0: And it looks like Johnson Wax. Um, what what were they known known for?
1: Uh, <laughs> Johnson Wax, <laughs> but also they they had a uh, a bunch of other brands, they, right, like they were kind Edge of a
0: large parent company
1: and a bunch of stuff like that, but at the period of acquiring Hollybar, they were also acquiring a lot of other brands, old right. town canoes and uh, Coleman and a bunch of
0: yeah orvis Eureka yeah uh-huh um and and then from there why didn't it pan out because they eventually sell to to the North face in 81?
1: Yeah. Um, what, what,
0: what ended up happening there with the company? Do you happen to know? The
1: employees uh, basically uh, would say that uh, it just wasn't a good fit. That's what they said. Hmm. It wasn't a good fit. Uh, yeah. Johnson Wax just really didn't understand the brand. They didn't understand the, the uh, loyalty of the customers. They didn't understand just the, the whole Scene of Holly bar and its climbing roots, and you know they just didn't get it, and nobody was really to blame, but it just didn't work, and um, so Johnson Wax, um, how shall I say it? Well, they got out of it.
0: Right. Yeah. They and they uh, can, they they sold it off to the North Face. Yeah. It's we touched on this in our Jerry conversation, but there's kind of this history of some of these really authentic brands um at some point the founder or the founders are no longer a part of the company and you know they they end up getting sold and traded hands and um you know there's kind of this corporatization that happens you know you start to see some of these larger parent companies buying up all these brands right and some of them not outdoor you know companies buying up brands um yeah. And we, we were maybe once we get through a few more brands, it'll be interesting to look back and compare and contrast which companies was that a good decision for, or, you know, what was the outcome of being acquired and, and what did that do to the company? But um, what was the backstory behind the the North Face acquisition? It sounds like Johnson Wax just wanted to get out of it. What was, what was the North Face interested in?
1: north face course was a brand that was by then well established Mm -hmm. and had a real reputation as a a kind of a climbers company too um at least they supplied expeditions right and so holly bar seemed to them a really good fit and here it was being put out on the market oh my god so so hap hap clop um was excited And uh, he wrote up a a page-long, here's what we've done, and it sent out to all the interested parties within North Face. Here's what we've done. It's a wonderful opportunity, and we'll be doing this with the stores, the various chain of stores. And and that just didn't work out either, although it took several years for it to kind of wind down after that.
0: Right. They were bought in 81 and it looks like the brand, it's like 85. It kind of just stops existing, just kind of the people in
1: those later years who worked in the stores would say things like well, there we were. The sign on the outside of the building said are, and yet we'd get our paychecks from North Face (laughs) and we would have more and more products from North Face in our Hollybar store and very few products that had a Hollybar label on right. mostly new old stock um and finally in 85 uh, some people in Boulder said that the last remaining store uh they remember when one day a work crew came and took down the Hollybar sign and put up a North Face sign and that was it Wow. And then the brand went into hibernation for decades. North Face right. had it, but wasn't using it.
0: Right. So North Face still owned it, right? Um, yes. And we'll we'll talk about what where the brand's at right now. But um, I should mention, so 92, Roy passes away. Was he able to attend that um, OIA event where they recognized the pioneers of the industry? Or had he passed away before that?
1: Yeah, he just missed it.
0: Oh, really, just barely yeah, wow.
1: plus he was pretty sick there in those final few right couple years
0: was did he stay in Boulder that whole time?
1: yeah, he remarried and uh lived there uh, back in the seventies uh, uh he would drop by the store now and then, and uh people would welcome him
0: right, oh, that's great um so really, the brand nineteen eighty five kind of went into hibernation and recently it's it's woken up it's come back in a way when when uh when did that happen
1: well the story really begins with a guy from italy contacting me about god it must be about 10 years ago now uh saying i have this clothing company in italy and i'm interested in acquiring a um quality vintage brand. do you have any ideas? Because you're the expert, Bruce. Uh, so I did uh, a bunch of research uh, and uh, in my estimation Hollybar would be a really good brand for them to acquire and I knew where it had gone. so eventually uh, they got together with the North Base attorneys and they worked out the deal.
0: Right. Oh, that's interesting. Um, when and so that was about ten years ago. And roughly, yeah. The brand officially relaunched it was pr- pretty recently. Was the last couple of years? When when did they really relaunch? No,
1: it, it it's they've been making they've been making product and uh, selling it in Europe for quite a few years now. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and uh, also uh, for at least five years now in Japan
0: right so uh, they're they, back they've,
1: yeah they've made several attempts to uh, get themselves started in the US and Canada and uh, most recently uh, i think they've got a firm foothold now
0: right based what,
1: in new york city
0: right yeah we and and it seems like they're really kind of focused on on quality high end um kind of positioning them that way. And I think that's great. Like they, they want to be, they want to honor the heritage as a, as a quality brand. I, I'd, I'd love to hear what your thoughts on, we talked a little bit about this regarding Jerry and some of these brand revivals, but you know, what do you think that they're doing right? Um, you know, reviving this brand.
1: I think, uh, I think they're producing quality products. Uh, they have decided on what their niche is and it isn't, Trying to make backpacks or tents or sleeping bags, it's making uh, garments, and they have uh, quite the crew of designers out there. Uh, especially now that they're here in the U.S., they've got a very wide lineup of different styles of. Uh, they're all garments, although they've most recently they've started having some some uh, things that are. Uh, I'm glad to see like t-shirts and hats things that are actually quite uh inexpensive that anybody can have
0: right right well it's it's been fun to see them come back and i you know we talked about this a little bit i i foresee more of that coming right i think people mm-hmm. love a story and they love a brand that has a history um and so i foresee more of that happening there's just an interest in in this history and I know you've had a few questions around brands that that you think would be good to revive, but um, I guess to, to kind of wrap up, what do you want to leave listeners with? What do you feel like the lasting impacts of Holy bar Roy and Alice are um, on the industry?
1: They're a story of two people who began a business in a basement and Focused on the right things, which were a quality product and uh, a real commitment to their customers. And never failed in that mission. Right. Um, The fact that they did things like uh, get uh, Mountain Rescue in Colorado going, yeah, those are important too. But uh, within the history of gear, I I think that's what the company is right, rightfully uh, famous and important for.
0: Did you get the chance to talk with, um, with, with Roy at all? Um, Did you ever get the chance to talk with him or I know you got to talk with Jerry towards the end of his life. Um, did you ever get to the chance to, to sit down and talk with Roy?
1: No, no. Um, that was before I began this whole project of mine. Yeah. Uh, 92, I, I really didn't get going until 95, 96.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, um, did, did you ever hear or ask the same question about Jerry Cunningham? Did you ever hear, you know, how Roy felt about his legacy? Did he see it as a legacy? I know Jerry didn't necessarily feel that way. Um, but did you ever hear from, from other people how, You know what Roy, um, Roy thought of, of the work that they did?
1: I didn't. Um, the fact that he would uh, hang out uh, in the stores when they were still there uh, tells me that he valued that and liked being a part of that. Right. That's right. As, as much as I could say there.
0: Right. No, I think that makes sense. Well, any, any parting thoughts on, on Holy bar, what it means? Um, if not, we'll, we'll wrap up and, and turn the page and, and focus on on another brand next time, but any parting thoughts that you have on the Holy bar brand?
1: I'm glad to see it back. Um, because it's one of the most significant names from the classic era, from the very early pioneers, and it's really great to see it back.
0: Yeah, great to see it back. Great to look back on their past and uh, looking forward to their future. I know we've been in contact with them as well, and exciting to see what they're they're working on. So,
1: I did not give proper attention really to the role that Linda Hollybar played in both the company and in the making of my book. She was their only child, and kind of as such, she was really involved in the business and was extremely knowledgeable about what went on and who did what. And she sewed too; sewed some stuff up, like all of the sleeping bag uh, stuff sacks. So when I tried to develop my biography pieces on who Roy was and who Alice was. I could not have done it without her. She was just an absolute fountain of knowledge and was very exacting that I get all the details right, which you will see in the book.
0: Well, thanks again for just, you know, for all the work that you do, the research that you've put into this work. Um, I'd recommend anyone get get the book. Um, you know, we'll link to, to, the, to your website again. Um, You know, and there's, there's so much more you could dive into by, by reading your work. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah,
1: I, I do want to interject the, uh, since I self published the books, they're way too expensive that way. They're very much worth it if you have the money, but uh, I also offer PDF versions, which are very much less expensive. Right. (laughs) And, And that's on the website too. Oh,
0: that's great. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thanks again for taking the time and sharing um, you know, all this great history about the Holubars and your connection to them. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. Subscribe and listen for more outdoor stories and content wherever podcasts are found on HighlanderBag.com and each Sunday at 4 p.m. on Aggie Radio, 92.3 FM in Cash Valley.